We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. A few years ago, my favorite seminary professor told a story about a circus parade moving through the streets of Milan, Italy, when suddenly one of the elephants veered from the line and marched right into a church. Jumbo uh, walked down the center aisle, waved and trumpeted with her trunk, then turned around and walked out the doors and resumed her place in the parade. Then he said, I wonder how many of us are like that pious pachyderm. Every week we lurch into church, make a few noises, look around, and then step out to resume our place in the parade of life. Elephants in church. Elephants in ministry. Elephants in pulpits. Attend some services, sing a few songs, shake a few hands, preach a few sermons, counsel a bit. I wonder how many of us are like that. I wonder how many of us lack the knowledge of what God is doing in history. I wonder if we really know why it is that God called us, why it is that God saved us, why it is that God redeemed us. What is the purpose of it all? What are we Christians really here for? Well, today we will answer that question, why did God save us? What is God doing? What is the purpose of it all? And we'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And uh, before we get into chapter 2, I'm going to kind of give us a running start through chapter 1 to begin us properly in chapter 2. Paul begins chapter 1 of Ephesians with his typical salutation, his typical greeting in verses 1 and 2. And then he goes in verses 3 to 14 and gives the longest sentence recorded in the entire New Testament in Greek. It's 202 words. And he begins it with, blessed be the God and Father who... And clause after clause after clause and after clause, Paul speaks about the blessedness of God. It's as if he could have kept on going, but he simply ran out of breath and finally had to put a period at the end of the sentence. And what's interesting in that passage, two things stand out most prominently. One, God's sovereign action, and two, his plan for history. Just listen to the words in this little section as I read them out to you of God's intentionality. He predestined us, mentioned twice. His will, mentioned three times. His wisdom, his insight, his intention, his purpose, his counsel. Clearly within verses 3 through 14, we get that God is up to something. He is acting with intention. He is doing something with purpose. But what is he doing? Well, we're told in that same chapter in verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 10, we see that God is organizing an administration suitable to the fullness of times. The fullness of times refer to God's end game for all time. The fullness of times refers to what God is doing throughout human history, that history is moving somewhere and God is in charge of it and he has a plan for where history is going. He is the one directing it. He is orchestrating it. It's his administration. And what is that? 
It is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. This is what theologians refer to as the consummation of all things. That all things are coming under Christ's headship. All things are being redone and repaired in Christ. All of human history is moving to this juncture under the headship of Jesus Christ. Right now, all things are broken. Things are undone. Things are chaotic. Things are rebellious. But one day, things will be fixed. Things will be redone. Things will be orderly. And things will be at peace. And what's interesting is this process has already begun. It's happening right now. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, all things have become new. This process for all human history has begun, and it has begun with you, the Christian. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, in this section of Scripture, in the beginning of the book of Ephesians, we notice the repetition of some pronouns. Throughout verses 3 through 14, we see you, it's plural, you all, referring to the church. We see we, we see us over and over and over again in this section, letting us know that God has co-opted his people, the church, to participate in his grand scheme for the cosmos, that what God is doing in history through Jesus Christ involves the body of God's Son, the church. For you cannot accept, you cannot separate what Christ is doing with what the body is doing. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen too many heads just floating around. What is true of Christ, as we'll see, is true of the believer. And what God is accomplishing in human history through his Son involves you. And it is a great, great privilege to participate in what God is doing in human history. <laughs> that is our running start. And in chapter 2, beginning in verses one, beginning in verse 1, we see this process begins with each individual person. We'll see our past status before Christ. We'll see our present status in Christ. And then we'll see our future status in glory. And then within these uh, tenses, this, these three stages of time that involve the believer, we'll see how God has incorporated us, the body of God's Son, the church, in accomplishing his inevitable plan. Well, just as a jeweler places diamonds on a black cloth to contrast, as contrast to make them shine more brightly, before going into God's grace, Paul begins by showing how dark things were without it. He then places the diamond of God's grace against the backdrop of sin so that God's grace will shine all the more brilliantly. Here's the backdrop, verses one through three. This is every person's status prior to coming to Christ. Verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Death does not mean to cease to exist. Death in scripture always means separation. So physical death is separation from the land of the living. Uh, spiritual death is separation from God. And so what we see here is that prior to conversion, every person is spiritually dead and separated from God. Dead in sin means left to ourselves, we are unable to respond to the spiritual life of God. 
We lack the spiritual receptors to connect to the current of the spiritual life of God. And then Paul goes on to paint a even more bleak picture in verse 2. In which you, in which, which being the sins, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Meaning, your manner of life was governed and controlled by the sinful principles of this fallen world. That this world operates according to some principles that are fallen. And Paul says that apart from Christ, every person blindly follows this script. According to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. The ruler of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, prior to Christ, humanity is subject to Satan. And he is the ruler of this domain. And, we, and he's working in the sons of disobedience. The word working is the word for, it's the word dynamos. It means it's the word for power. And so we see that Satan is even energizing humanity and that all humanity is under Satan's thumb. Verse three, among them we too all formerly walked. So Paul now incorporates himself with every Christian prior to trusting Christ. And then he goes on and says, controlled by the lusts and desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Not only were we held in bondage to this world and its principles, but to its ruler, Satan, but we had an inner bondage enslaved to a sin nature and, were, and are therefore were under God's judgment. Verses one through three are our, is our prior status before coming to Christ. And what Paul does here is he's given us a coroner's report that we, prior to Christ, we have been pronounced spiritually dead, that we were buried in the graveyard of our trespasses and sins, that we were trapped in the coffin with two locks, one on the outside, this world and Satan, and one on the inside, our own sinful nature. And so we may have had mobility in Satan's kingdom, but we had no ability to respond to the spiritual stimuli of God. In a sense, we were the walking dead. So though you may have been pretty, and though you may have been educated, and though you may have been rich, you were alienated from the life of God. And as Tony Evans says, no clever arrangement of bad eggs can ever result in a good omelet. <laughs> Paul's point is clear. He's expressing the all-pervasiveness of our sinful status prior to Christ. Externally controlled by Satan's system and under Satan's rule, internally controlled by a sinful nature and under God's judgment. It is very dark, it is very bleak, and it is very serious. That's why Jesus came. But Paul introduces two words that change everything. But God. 
Paul finally introduces the subject of this sentence. In Greek, verses one through seven are one long sentence, and verses one through three are an incomplete sentence. Paul is just kind of keeping us there in suspense before he introduces us to the subject, God, who changes our status prior to Christ. But is a contrasting conjunction, meaning God as the subject is about to take action against something that was previously stated, i.e., our coroner's report. God being, being rich in mercy. Notice that God is not only merciful, but he is rich in mercy. God has a storehouse. God has an unlimited amount of wealth, of compassion, and pity on those controlled and under the calamity of sin. Now this brings up a very real question, why is it then that God would display or show mercy towards those who are fraternizing with Satan? Why would he do that? His love, next word, dia or because. This is a preposition of cause. The reason God demonstrates his mercy towards sinners is because of his love. God is not only rich in mercy, but notice in the text, he is great in love. Agape, love. It means seeking the highest good in the one loved. Look at the last clause in verse four. With which he loved us. God's great love is directed toward you, Christian. Don't miss this. God is seeking your highest good, Christian. When? Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Not because we responded correctly, not because we gave the right action, the right answer, certainly not because we're so lovable. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. Now that's pretty good, right? That's pretty good, amen? But it gets even better. We haven't even got to the main verbs of this sentence yet. God made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, there are three matching verbs in that sentence made alive, raised up, and seated. God is the subject. So God made alive, God raised up, God seated. Who, is, who are the recipients of God's actions? Us, us, us. Three times it's mentioned there. With Christ, with him, with him. In the heavenlies, that is the location, because we are in Christ. That is the sphere of our existence. The believer exists in Christ. That last little prepositional phrase, in Christ, shows the believer's mystical and dynamic union with Christ. That we have been made alive with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We have been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Let me explain what that means. Christ's current physical status is the believer's current spiritual status. 
Christ was physically made alive from the dead. We are spiritually made alive from the dead. Christ was physically resurrected. We are spiritually resurrected. Christ is physically seated in power, and we are spiritually seated in power with him. This is what you call a realized eschaton, eschatology, but not a fully realized eschatology, the end. It has a now and a not yet element. Presently, right now, we are mystically, spiritually, in the heavenly places with Christ. So in a very real sense, what is true of the believer, or what is true of Christ, is true of the believer. That we are with him, a now and not yet. And one day, this will be fully realized. It won't just be a spiritual reality. It'll be a fully realized element of our status and state with Christ. When did all this happen? Verse 5, by grace you have been saved at your salvation. Grammatically, those three verbs, made alive, raised up, and seated, find their, their, their place in time when this happened. At the moment of your salvation, you were transferred into this new spiritual realm. And it is the dawning of an entirely new age. When Christ died on the cross, he died to sin, which was the death to an old order. Death to the order where Satan's dominion and system controlled everything. And it was the dawning of a new order. The beginning of an entirely new age where Christ is now consummating all things under his rule. And he's called the church, the believers, those who have been united with him in power to take part in that role of bringing all things under Christ. Why is this important? Well, if you jump back over to chapter 1 in the book of Ephesians, if you have your Bibles, please look there. And you're going to see where God, where Paul writes about how God's power, the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us who believe. So God's power is directed toward the believer. Verse 20, which he, the Father, brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So what happened to Christ is the same for us, except notice he's, in, he's seated at the right hand, right hand being the position of power. We're just said to be seated in Christ. So there is a difference, but in a very real sense, what is true for Christ is true for you. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, so not only in the present, so this is true right now, but also in the age to come. And that'll come back around in our text today, this age to come. So what Paul is saying here is that all the spiritual forces that once held you captive are now under Christ's feet. Look at verse 22 of chapter one. Forgot to read this verse. And he put all things in subject under his, Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So all the spiritual forces that once held you captive are now under Christ's feet. The feet are the body, are part of his body. The body is the church. So don't miss that. 
you are presently and dynamically linked with Christ and share in his power over these spiritual forces that once held you captive. And if you were to look, if we were to continue through this book, you flip to chapter six, you see this is what Paul is talking about, that though they are under his feet, presently the battle still continues. Paul says in chapter six, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The only way we can do that is if we share, if we are in Christ and share in his power. And then he says, put on the full armor of God. And then in verse 12, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. And so Paul is saying that these spiritual forces, these spiritual inimical satanic powers that once held you captive are now under you, but the battle still goes on. Again, a now and not yet reality. It has begun, but it is not fully completed. And if we were to continue in chapter six, you see the way you engage in the armor of God is through prayer. But Paul's point in beginning this way is to get the believer to identify the goodness of God from where they came from, from to where they're at now. You are in a privileged status because you are in Christ. And then in verse seven, Paul says, so that in the ages to come, he might show, so this future, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So Paul has moved from the past, verses one through three, to the present, verses four through six, and now to the future in verse seven, in the ages to come. And God's doing something through us in, this, in these ages to come. Remember, this begun, has already begun, but also it's gonna be fully realized in eternity. In the ages to come, God is going to show us. That word show is a word that means to prove or to display something as in a court of law. You are making a case. God is making a case through the church throughout all of eternity. And what he is doing is he's proving through those who were once held captive by Satan, he's showing through us his attributes. God is showing his love, his mercy, his kindness and grace through us. We Christians are called to display the very attributes of God. That's, what, that's in part what God is doing through the church. That when people see us, they don't see the world, they see something different. That what's out there is not the same to what's in here. In a very real sense, the church is called to be a window into heaven. Because we are here and we are there, it is now and not yet, and we are the only people on the planet that reveal the very attributes of who God is. No one else does, just you. You're the only person. You're the only people. Us, we reveal who God is to the world. About once a week, my three-year-old daughter will burst through the doors of my study, uh, bedazzled in costume jewelry. And she'll say, look at me, daddy, look at me, look at me. And I stop what I'm doing and look at her because I know it's God's way of sanctifying me. 
And she will wait until she notices me looking back at her. She'll watch me until I'm watching her. And then when she knows I'm watching her, she'll do a little shimmy. (laughs) Rattling all the plastic jewelry she's wearing. Now, what is she wanting me to do? She's wanting me to look at the jewelry. Now, I've already seen this jewelry. I'm the one that got it for her. I saw it before she saw it. But as she displays the jewelry I gave her, she's actually displaying something greater than the jewelry, isn't she? What is she displaying? She's displaying my love for her. She's displaying my concern for her, my care for her. She is displaying that I am seeking her highest good. When God saved you, you became his child. And now you became a display of something greater than yourself. You became a display of God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, and God's kindness. If you just look in chapter 2, that's what it's, that's the attributes of God are being elevated through you. In light of where we came from, the backdrop of sin, here is the diamond of God's grace. Come and look. We display to the world the diamond of God's grace. And so Christians are called to reveal the attributes of God. But how? How is it that God has called us to display him? Well, in verse 8, Paul elaborates on something he mentioned back in verse 5. And back in verse 5, Paul said, By grace you have been saved. But this time in verse 8, he throws an explanatory conjunction in front of it. For, for by grace you have been saved. And so what Paul is going to do now is explain in greater detail. He's going to elaborate on the kindness of God in our salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now grace is God's unmerited, unearned favor towards those who are in the coffin. Mercy, or faith, is the channel by which grace comes. It is trusting in the work of the cross. It is believing, having faith in the gospel. Salvation is the application of the cross. And Paul makes it very clear, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, sometimes people will wonder, what does Paul mean by that is not of of yourselves? That is not of yourselves. Is Paul referring to grace that is not of yourselves? Is Paul referring to faith that is not of yourselves? Is Paul referring to salvation that is not of yourselves? Well, grace and faith, in Greek, every word has a gender, and it's used to make more clear the sentence. And grace and faith in this text are both feminine, while that, the word that, is neuter. You would expect them to match. So maybe it's salvation. Well, salvation is masculine in gender. It doesn't match. So what is that that Paul is referring to? It's interesting that when that doesn't match in gender with the stuff that came before it, it refers to the whole concept that preceded it. 
And so in explaining salvation, Paul is saying the entire concept of grace through faith, salvation is an act of God from beginning to end. Boasting makes humans the object of faith. Paul is saying that it's all God. You had no spiritual receptors to respond to the current of God's spirit. And so all we have is a need. That's all we can go to God to is a need. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. That is what we go to God to. And in verse 10, we see why salvation is not a result of our works. For we, the recipients of God's salvation, are his, God's workmanship. Workmanship meaning we are God's intelligent or skillful design. We are the handiwork of God. He formed us. He molded us because we were created in Christ Jesus. Here Paul's referring to this idea of recreation, being born anew. We are kind of the first fruits of the ages to come. We are the beginning process of this future age of glory. We are the first fruits of this recreation. We have been made new by God. It's called being born again. Now, the word workmanship is the word poema, and it is likely where we get the English word for poem. A poem is something that is skillfully crafted by a poet. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are a lot of people out there that don't think Christians are all that great. They say things like, I see all kinds of hypocrisy. I see all kinds of inconsistencies. I see all kinds of problems. And let me tell you something. Sometimes the best thing to do is not to argue with them, but simply to agree. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But you wouldn't believe how bad I used to be. I used to follow Satan. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how bad I used to be. If you knew how bad I used to be compared to that, I'm poetry. But we still have not answered the question, why has God saved us? What are we saved for? Saved for what? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That word for is not the same word Paul used earlier. Here he uses the word epi, and it's a preposition, and it denotes purpose. We could very correctly translate this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Now you are not saved by doing good works, but you have been saved for good works. Works are not the root of your salvation. They are the fruit of your salvation. Good works are evidence of your salvation. They show the grace and kindness of God. In light of where you came from, in light of your past, you are poetry. Between services, a man came up to me and he says, he said to me, he goes, I, I met a guy this, this couple weeks ago and, 
We were on vacation and <laughs> I met a guy on vacation, well, I was on vacation and there was a man, this man, he was born with his feet backwards. And he said, God just impressed on my heart that if this was repairable, then, then I would pay for it. And he goes, I found out that it was repairable. And so I offered this guy that I will pay, I offered him to put forward the money to pay for his surgery. And so now we're, we're working as a church to connect this guy with some doctors that can help do that. And what was really heart-wrenching was this man whose feet were uh, out of place, he said, I just resolved to live this way for the rest of my life, to never walk normally ever. And just as back in chapter two, verse two, we once walked according to the course of this world, we're told here in verse 10 that we have a new walk. The word walk is used in the beginning of this section and in the end of this section. And I wanna tell you today that if this is resonating in your heart today, don't resolve to not walk differently. Look in verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that purpose, you would walk in them. You once walked one way, now you're walking another way. You once walked according to this world, now you walk in something else. And just as you can't boast in your salvation, you can't even boast about the good works you do. God prepared them beforehand. You don't even have to worry about it. But your responsibility is to walk in them. They're already there. They're waiting on you. God prepared them for you to walk in beforehand. Now, a good work that God is calling you to work to walk in is a divinely prescribed action that benefits the others so that it results in God being glorified. That is what a good work is. It benefits others so that it brings glory to God. And it's not so much that you are doing good works for God, but it is God doing work in and through you as you walk by faith in his power. Many Christians, many, many, many Christians are living unfulfilled and miserable lives because they have failed to walk in the divinely prescribed actions God has already for them. And so they spend their wills playing with mud pies when they could be out sailing on adventures with God. And the more that we grab a hold of this, of God's word, the more that we're gonna realize that we're gonna find our greatest satisfaction in walking in the things that God has pre-designed for us to walk in. You will never find your satisfaction in anything unless it's first found in God. And then it colors everything else. This is what you were created for. You were created for good works, to display, to reveal who God is to the world. And God's already got them prepared for you. You just gotta walk in them. And in so doing, you display why God saved you, because of his love, mercy, kindness, and grace. And that, in fact, is our motivation. When we embrace our prior status to Christ, we realize 
the great love with which God loved us. God's love motivates me to love those who don't love me. God loved me even when I was under Satan's rule, controlled by Satan, dead in my transgressions and sins. God loved me then. Therefore, I'm now able to display that kind of love to a world that doesn't love me. God displayed grace to me, this unmerited favor, this unmerited kindness. Even when I was undeserving of it, when I was rebelling against God, God displayed his self to me that way so that I can display that attribute of God to a world that is ungracious to me. And when we respond tit for tat, who are we acting like, Satan in the world or God? God's kindness and God's grace that has been displayed toward me is my motivation for displaying kindness and grace towards others. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. What are the greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's not talking about little parts of your body. It means your whole being, your whole person is called to love God. And only then can I fulfill the other one, to love people. Only then. And so this is such a high calling. I wish that we as the body of God's son would just grip a hold of it, not let it go, and just own it with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, and realize the high calling that God has given us. That this is what we were created for. This is the manual. And so let's build our lives according to the manual, not according to something else. And as we do this, we are actually taking part in God's grand scheme for the cosmos of bringing all things under Christ. We are participating in the future as if it's now. Our future's secured. Here's where it's going. Now let's take part as God has called us to and as God has co-opted us into this plan. Let's walk in those things that God has called us in. Let's fulfill them. Let's enjoy it. It's gonna be great. And it continues into eternity as we display his goodness. We haven't seen anything yet. It's gonna be mind-blowing. And in part, we experience that now. And so, Christian, you reveal God by walking in good works. Let's just, in conclusion, let me put all this together. Prior to Christ, we were separated from God and held captive by Satan and in bondage to sin. But God, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, rescued us from sin, Satan, the world, and condemnation. And God benevolently recreated us in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works which display who he is to the world. Look at me. Look at my dad. And now we walk in Christ in the divinely prescribed actions that benefit others in such a way that people say, wow. <laughs> so, if you have never put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have yet to recognize him as your Lord and Savior, you're still trapped in the coffin. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is kind. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is gracious. But God is also just. 
And a just God would not be loving, kind, merciful, and gracious if he did not judge sin, Satan, and the world. And this is your opportunity for anyone in here who's never put their trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to remove the condemnation of their sin, to impart the life of Christ into you and on your behalf. Now is the time to do that. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in him. And for the Christian to which this text is given, remember that Christians are called to reveal God by doing good works. So do good works. God's already got them there. They're waiting on you. And let me just bring a little bit of clarity to what a good work is. Anything done for Christ according to the truth is a good work. It is a work worth doing. And so sharing your faith, Christian, is a good work. That is a good thing to do. Serving your community according to the truth is a good work. I say according to the truth because there are a lot of entities out there that serve their community, but they're merely meeting the material, physical, emotional, relational needs, which is good and which we should do, but we're going one step beyond that. We're remedying through Christ Jesus the alienation a fallen humanity has with the holy God. And so we don't stop at the physical. We go on and press on to the spiritual, the solution to all the world's problems, Jesus Christ. A good work is finding and meeting the needs in your church. That is a good work. Gifting is a good work. Discipling your family is a good work. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was called over and over and over again to teach their children to walk in the ways of the Lord. When they go down, when they rise up, when they go out, when they come in, they are to be surrounded by the teaching of God. Discipling others is a good work. Jesus said, go and make disciples, teaching them the things I commanded you. We are all the result of Jesus Discipling the disciples who discipled other people, who discipled other people, who discipled other people, and it spanned across the world to us today. We are all the result of Jesus discipling his 12. And so it is a good thing to disciple others. All you have to do is stay a week ahead. That's all you got to do. Just stay a week ahead. Disciple somebody younger than you in the faith. In fact, this church is built on discipleship. It is the backbone, it is in our DNA, it is who we are. We, from the very beginning, have been about expositing the word of God, discipling others, and sharing our faith. That is who we are as a church. And that is why if you were to go and walk out through our foyer, if you were to go to Starting Point, if you were to look at our magazine, it's all about discipleship. We have grievance ministries, we have hospitality ministries, we have all these other great things, but the core of who we are is discipleship. And that's because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ said we do and should be doing. And specifically for us, since 1981, it has been the Navigators 2-7 Discipleship Program. This is the backbone of our church. Who here wasn't even alive in 1981? Three of you. All right. Four. Thank you, sister. Two sevens is one of the two seven is one of the primary means that we disciple people 
to become equipped who then can go and disciple and equip others. And what's wonderful about 2-7 is that it teaches you how to pray. How do we pray according to God's word? Well, it teaches you how to pray. It teaches you how to study the Bible. It teaches you about the Bible. It teaches you the importance of attaching yourself to a community, to the life of God through his people. It teaches you how to memorize certain scriptures that will carry you through your days, carry you through life all the rest of your days. Key scriptures that you can take with you everywhere. And when a certain situation pops up, boom, you've got the scripture for it. And you'll see God operate in that moment. It teaches you how to share your faith in such a way that it's just, it's overflow. You're not targeting people necessarily. You just, it's the, the abundance of who God is pouring out of you in the everyday flow of life. Two seven disciples you in that kind of way. And we have lots of other ministry opportunities for you to learn to do good works and to serve. And so if, as I close in prayer, uh, if your heart was stirred this morning, uh, my heart was so stirred in preparing for this message. And so I, my, my hope is to always bring what God did to me is to bring it here and for God to do the same to you. And God stirred my heart through this word. And so if your heart is stirred this morning and you would like to know how you can either sign up for one of our many discipleship programs, our 2-7 program, it's going on right now. I'm gonna be at the back at starting point, which it's the place, if you're new to Denton Bible, where you start. You go there and you find out everything Denton Bible Church, and I will be back there. I'll direct you to our, our uh, starting point team, our church life. They are eager to, to, to join in your good works for God. And I, I can show you where our 2-7 group is, but I'm gonna be back there. I'd love to chat with you. Um, amen? All right, I'm gonna pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our risen Lord, our exalted Lord, our resurrected Lord. We thank you that you have co-opted us into this plan for the ages and that you have privileged us to take part in it by simply living out faithful lives of doing good works which display who you are. I thank you, God, that you don't abandon us simply because we fall short. And we can actually acknowledge our shortcomings to simply display how you overcome all things by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that whether we are new here at Denton Bible or whether we've been coming for a while, that we would have a desire to fulfill our calling, to walk in the prescribed divine actions you have laid out before us. God, I pray that you would energize us by your spirit. I know you'll give us the ability. I know you'll give us the necessities to see them through. I pray, God, that you would move us to walk in them. All to the glory of our great God and King, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.